0: So, it's uh, in conversation with Changing Streams, and today we're going to be talking about creating a sustainable working environment. With me, we have Sean, Gareth, and Natasha. So, to start off with, I'm going to start off with Sean, and to, if you can give us a little bit about yourself and a bit about your life, and uh, then we'll move through.
1: Hello, what have you got, Brendan? Um, hello, everybody. Uh, Lovely to join you all. Um, Yes, Cheryl Sutherland. I'm co-founder of an organization called A Plastic Planet, probably the least likely eco warrior that you will ever meet. Massive plastic sinner. My background is that of an entrepreneur. Um, And most latterly, I co-founded and ran a um, a skincare brand. So you can imagine how many plastic bottles I've pumped out into the environment. Um, But I had my own personal epiphany some six, seven years ago now. And now I fight, I fight the good plastic fight, working with governments to, uh, to bring in new laws, legislation, fiscal policy, and also working with industry. Because as an entrepreneur, you will understand, I believe, passionately in the power of business to create change for good.
0: Thank you, Sean. If it makes you feel any better, I also had an epith- epiphany I pioneered uh, pre-packed nails, so I put millions and millions and millions of plastic bags into the environment, um, but then I saw the light and I, I've, I've moved on. Uh, Natasha. Hi everyone, nice to meet you. My name is Natasha Connolly. I'm an
2: Director in sustainability at Arup. Uh, Arup is a multidisciplinary consultancy firm, uh, a global firm. Uh, I, you can probably tell from my accent, I'm not a uh, local from northwestern Yorkshire, but I'm originally from Australia, and I moved over here three and a half years ago with Arup. Um, my expertise is in sustainability broadly uh, uh, particularly at an organization level really working with companies and governments and uh, different organizations across different sectors in terms of really striving for better sustainability outcomes and embedding sustainability into decision making i also work with companies and organizations at design level and also when they're looking at business cases to really yeah as i said work out what um, the main drivers are for their sustainability agenda and and how we can really set to
3: achieve across the spectrum
0: fantastic and gareth
3: good afternoon everyone um, so yeah i'm Gareth simpson i'm head of operations at chester zoo um, so those who don't know chester zoo we're a major wildlife uh, conservation charity and it's our mission to prevent extinction so kind of very aligned in some of the conversations that hopefully will take place today I've been in the zoo uh, eight years. Um, Originally, I came in to manage a construction project um, for a redevelopment of part of the zoo called Islands. And then after that moved into operational role. Um, So managing health and safety, our FM team, security, first aid, visitor operations. And now within the senior management team, and as part of our conservation master plan, what's popped out of that is four pillars, one of which I'm leading as a project, which is our journey to zero waste by 2030. So here I am.
0: Fantastic, fantastic. Okay, so the, so the big question to start us off is, I think we all agree that um, in order for a business to retain uh, its employees and team members, also to uh, keep their customers and acquire new customers, they're going to have to show that they are um, creating a sustainable working environment. My question to each of you is, how? And we'll start off
3: with, Gareth. Okay, no problem. I think best for this, if, if I could tell you a little bit about our journey to, to get the goals, that's kind of important. I have mentioned the conservation master plan that will pop up. But it's important, you know, I, I call this doing the right thing. And it's the right thing for the world, the planet. It's the right thing for our visitors, our employees, which is important. And of course, uh, all, all our future visitors and uh, staff who, who will come through the doors at some point. <clears throat> So, I think, if you look at Chester Zoo, said we're a major wildlife charity and we're making that contribution to tackling global extinction at a time when it's needed most. So it does need deliberate and innovative conservation actions and we rise to that call through what I've said before the conservation master plan. That sets out how we all work collaboratively uh, in, in the organisation, uh, looking at contributions, yes, to restore populations for wildlife, creating conditions for reversing further loss of biodiversity, but engaging people and in influencing policy is going to be key to that and it's Those last three things that I see key to me in this project and the team I'm going to work with as we move towards zero waste in 2030, because that will have the biggest impact. If we look at it, you know, aside from the work we have to do as an organization, we've got this really unique opportunity through education of our visitors and our members. And of course, uh, wider engagement with the public. Uh, We play a major part in raising awareness for that plight. uh, And it's what we do. Um, So if I roll back to a normal year and just take a look at sort of the level we can reach, like 2019, so pre-COVID days, which I hope we see normality from here on in, uh, we see visitor numbers rising to over 2 million. Uh, We recorded over 132,000 Um, educational visitors on site, and we've interacted with, uh, I think it's something like 28,000 outreach participations and 32,000 one off outreach engagements with schools. Now, that puts us in that real unique position uh, to create positive transformational change in areas that can contribute towards one of the targets, uh, which is to empower 10 million people to live more sustainably. So when we talk about sustainability, yeah, I'm focusing on our our visitors and education at the minute. so if I look at prevent the extinction that must involve measures designed to reduce global threats to biodiversity and you know, we need to demonstrate sustainability in our zoos operation, which is key. So engagement of visitors and members on another level uh, allows us to establish a set of principles that will sort of redesign our products and services to ensure they meet sustainability criteria that we set. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. If I talk about zoo visits, I'm sort of highlighting it as well sustainable tourism. You know, we need to aim to be a leader in sustainable attractions that has to create a framework um, for just the environmental impact of attractions in the environment and working with partners. And this is important, but working with partners to collaborate on solutions that enable the sector to develop more sustainable ways of operating. And in my head, yes, that's that's other uh, attraction leaders or organizations, but of course also those who are processing and managing waste for us as well. We, we, we need to develop and evolve that because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm much aware of, uh, other or other zoos further down south that have different opportunities to what we have up here in terms of our waste management. Um, so four main principles and when we talk about the sustainability goals, the, these are key. So working towards zero waste outcome across all zoo operations. So reduce, reuse, recycle all our resources, quite a challenging one. Achieve a net uh, zero carbon target by 2030 with specific focus around travel energy and, of course, construction and to develop a strategy to achieve 100% deforestation free commodities within our own supply chain. So working with the supply chain as well on that uh, and using our influence uh, to change behavior of consumers in the wider industry. So if you look at Chester Zoo and look at one big behavior change we did talking about palm oil and the use of sustainable palm oil has been a big one and, and Chester being a sustainable palm oil city with a few others following. And then of course you've got policy levels. You know, We need to be able to access funding uh, to enable operations to become more sustainable as part of the UK's green strategy. Uh, we need to contribute uh, to consultations relating to green infrastructure. Uh, to enable us to reach that sustainability target more easily. We need to join leaders from other sectors uh, to share learning and best practice. And I hope that today's a a bit of an in route to that, you know, and I'm I'm available to reach out if anybody wants to. Uh, And um, to use our uh, influence in the international zoo sector to encourage sustainable practices and promotion of sustainable lifestyles to our visitors. That's something that we're, we're focusing on this year. And finally, influence policymakers to legislate for greener, uh, for greater sustainability within the tourism sector, whilst maintaining, of course, the commercial viability um, for the sector, which was hit pretty hard uh, in the past couple of years. So really, that's the four goals we've set. Um, and I, I hope that it's, it's a long-winded one, but hope that answers some questions.
0: No, it's absolutely fascinating. And um, just one question, just to go back a little bit about what you said, With, in terms of visitors to to the um, to the zoo. Um, do, do you do you engage at a business level with with local businesses to help them to understand uh, best practice because obviously you're in a unique position and you a unique position to influence because you talked about the education uh, with the schools mm-hmm. obviously businesses have got their own we're going to come on to this in a, in a in a while businesses have got their own challenge but it seems that you've got you've, you've done quite a lot of the work and and could show uh, how people can actually adopt what you've done Mm-hmm. In, in, in a smaller way, for from the smaller businesses, and and p- perhaps in a much bigger way for some of the larger businesses.
3: Yeah, I think you know I I referred to uh, sustainable palm oil and our palm oil project. So. Um, that, that's been a real key starter i, th- I think on on one of this journey and a really good example to look at if you look at the work the zoo has done working with local restaurants to raise awareness of, of of what it is um to to use sustainable palm oil not to boycott it completely but to find the right way to use a product that you need has been key and i know that we've had zoo colleagues not just engaging locally um, but also down in westminster as well so you know that that's that's really important uh, so yeah we do have a voice we, we we can shout about things and and it's important that, that we use that as as an enabler. I think also if if I look at some recent examples, you know, I'll I'll be open honest, you are at the start of this journey. Yes, a lot's been done, palm oil more so, um, but moving on to these four sustainability pillars, if you want to call it that from our conservation master plan, as we're only at the beginning you know I, I've seen hotels in Chester reaching out to me to talk about how do you deal with food waste and, and other organizations that way so there definitely is a, I, I would say eyes from outside in you know lo- lo- looking at us going what what are you doing how do you do it uh, and, and and what happens there but a- again we, we need to join forces with many people to talk about you know the challenges we have because yeah we've set ourselves some aspirational targets we need to as I say it's the right thing to do for everybody but we can't do it in isolation and, and that's the important piece. You know, we, we, we need to engage with others outside the zoo. And again, when I talk about processing waste, making sure we've got the most available and, and, and best, uh, I would say, best facilities um, in the area that, that can help us do that. And everybody needs a slice of that pie, really. Otherwise, it's going to be very hard to have a, a really good, um, I would say, sustainable workplace if if you can't recycle in the best way. You know.
0: Okay, I'll move on to a similar theme. And uh, Natasha, you follow Gareth and his extraordinary journey there.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, that was fascinating. And it really resonated with me some of the things that you were talking about. I think. I come from two aspects. One is working with external clients, but also ARP is, um, I do a lot of work with ARP internally in terms of our own operations and how how we're going on this journey as an organisation. And I think between the two, and I think Gareth has summarised it really well, there's uh, a number of areas. One is about knowing your business and understanding the extent of your impacts. And I think, uh, you know, we've talked quite a bit already about supply chain and your suppliers. And I think in the past that has been, you know, people kind of thought, oh, well, that, that isn't within our control or influence. It's, you know, they've kind of only really looked at their own internal um, operations. But I, I think really understanding your business and how, you know, the power of your investments and the power that you're of your purchasing is part of um, your full impact of a business. And I think also about setting um, inspirational targets, but also being um, practical about what you can achieve uh, and what you can do in terms of focus so while um, you know our sustainability people are always so keen to do everything and everything um, there is some merits in choosing some areas of focus that you can do well um, and to, to really demonstrate to your staff and to your stakeholders and to your shareholders and and different stakeholders that you're you're really um, focused and you're um, uh, you know you are achieving this and i think a, a part of that is also about this one of my favorite terms is sort of walking the talk because a lot of organizations might come up with these big aspirations and they going to do this but then you know on, on the ground level they're, they're it's not connected and they're not doing exactly what they've said that, that they're doing so I think you know having that authenticity and uh, in terms of walking the talk and really um, you know standing up to to that scrutiny is really important but also being humble in terms of the challenges. And as Gareth said, you know, sometimes these challenges, we can't just solve ourselves. And uh, it's really important to share information and be collaborative and and really recognize the challenges, but also the opportunities to go ahead. And I think transparency is really important, Um, you know, as again, it's about sharing information, sharing that journey that you're on, but also, you know, both in terms of the external market, but also to your staff and also about empowering all levels of staff and people that are making that organisation level. It's not just, you know, your sustainability team sitting in a corporate function, beavering away in an office. Everyone has to be on this journey. And so it's about empowering people who are making decisions, you know, at office level or on a project level or all aspects of the organisation. Everybody has a, a role to play and they can really take that on. So as long as, you know, this kind of education and empowerment is absolutely key to success as well.
0: Excellent. Sean.
1: What can I add? What can I add? Because so much great stuff has already been said. Um, I'll, I'll just I'll give it a slightly different perspective from somebody who, you know, as I say, believes in the power of business, but also understands how very very difficult change is when you've got the day job. Um, and we all know, you know, that uh, the old Milton Keynes, Milton Keynes, uh, the Keynesian um, definition of business. Uh, has really changed now from the 1970s where everything was driven towards rewarding shareholder value and delivering profit. And now profit is considered to be number five in the list of what the, the, the purpose of business should really be. And when I talk about that word sustainability, I don't know about you, but I slightly struggle with it. It's one of those words, what does it even mean now, sustainability? What does it mean? And it's, it's, it's not even a very aspirational word. If somebody says to you, so how's your marriage? And I said, oh, it's sustainable. said, Well, that's no high bar, is it? That's not exactly something to really gun for. Um, so I, I wonder if they, it, within the world of business, there's a different way that we can frame it. And so I often replace that word with responsibility so that you understand that whatever you do, within your entire remit uh, of in your in your world of business that you have to step up to this new level of responsibility that we completely ignored at the behest of profit we completely ignored beforehand um so with with that in mind the, the other thing that always strikes me is we've got this weird world that has evolved where business in the name of profit can do whatever they want to the destruction of biodiversity or the environment, or even really to the, to the um, uh, detriment of the health of the people that work within that organization. They can do whatever they want. And then perhaps with some of that, those multi-millions that they've made, they can give a little bit to something called charity to undo some of the harm that they have caused. And I think that model is completely broken. Why, why, is, why does charity even exist? Bit of a provocation when really business should be doing the good as well as the harm so the, this is going to be the new direction of travel is that businesses rather than thinking we'll make our millions and then give some stuff give a little bit of money to greenpeace or wwf or whoever it is to go and clean up the mess that we've created we also have to do the do just as natasha was saying it's not enough to say things anymore we have to deliver and then the final point i'd like to make is how important it is that business gets involved in what is the new laws, what what is the new taxation that is going to create the change because voluntary doesn't work. It is too hard for businesses to change. You know, Gareth runs an organization that is incredibly ethical, but he will know that if you are not running something like his operation up in, in Chester, that if you're running something like Unilever, where you have got these very powerful pension schemes and shareholders who are demanding, yeah, yeah, you know, look after your ESGs, but at the end of the day, you have to deliver that bottom line and I am, we're not going to be um, happy with less profit, even if you're starting to talk about this new triple bottom line experience. So it's incredibly difficult for these big organizations to change. And the only thing that will enable them to change faster is new laws which is why we spend a lot of our time in conversations with the European Commission and Downing Street because new laws actually help business change. And I, I, I've, I really encourage business to get involved. Everybody pays their corporation tax. We pay, you know, we pay our individual tax, but businesses fund everything in the country. And so businesses need to get involved much more at government level And and if you want legislation to create a level level playing field so that all industries can hold hands and jump together to a more responsible way of operating business, then they need to call for new laws together. So things that are in the world of plastic, change will start to happen because the UN will be sitting at the end of this month at UNEA 5.2 to discuss the first global plastics treaty. Which will be a binding agreement, unlike the Paris Agreement that was voluntary. Because if, if things aren't binding, if we don't, if it is not a legal requirement for countries and businesses to step up to match the requirements of a global treaty, then we're not going to see change happen fast enough. So the business has an opportunity to get involved at many different levels now of doing the good. Calling for governments who we pay and we vote into, into their positions of power to, to look after us, to look after the environment that we live in, to keep us safe. And we've seen that through COVID. This is, this is what the government is there to do. They need to step up to their different level of responsibility, not be scared of introducing bolder legislation. Industry can call for that now.
0: No, absolutely. And and coming back to you know sustainability, responsibility. I actually uh, would add in efficiency, because if we're minimizing our consumption of what we do within an organization, we're minimizing the products we consume, we're minimizing the energy we consume. All of that should filter to the bottom line anyway, because we're more efficient as an organization. So it's it 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 makes a lot of commercial sense to really look it's at your organization. Business. You know, yeah. it's it's it's. It yeah it's not rocket science but some people are building rockets when we could be building something else but that's a different conversation not for today um natasha do you want to respond to anything sean said on that
2: uh, no i agree I, it's interesting with the legislation i think there's there'll be obviously there's the you know they'll go carrot and stick uh, approach and I think you know both have to work in tandem in terms of um yeah legislation and policy certainly sets um, the minimum standard uh and and encourages better approach but I think we're, we're seeing particular real change in um that investment portfolio and the bankings and that will really drive change as well both in terms of you know companies are looking for green investments um, and so they're looking for companies that are you know have the right sustainability credentials and are making progression and and reporting on this process and so therefore that is an incentive for companies to do to do that to be able to track the right investment and also banks are providing um, you know more favorable loans or interest rates um, or banking products to companies that again have those sort of green credentials and again are reporting on this and doing it in a structured and processed way so not just a you know they've got a policy in place that it, you know they're really going from that due diligence perspective so I think those the, the mix of those aspects is really changing the market and, and, and how companies are responding which um, yeah is is a, a certainly a big driver for a lot of our clients.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's interesting again. And, and, and Gareth, with, with with your funding operation, you're a charity. So, where do you derive your uh, income? Is it is it from trading? Is it is it donations, etc. etc. The reason why I asked the question is, I think there's um, a huge opportunity there for helping you to engage with the corporate sector against their ESG targets, for you to have and actually trade some of your knowledge um, with, with
3: organisations. Yeah, I think you know. <clears throat> Yeah, I I said before, you know, we're a loud voice, but we're much louder when we all stand together. That that that's really key and important. Um, If you're talking about funding, absolutely, yeah, you know, it's who comes through the gate. You're buying a ticket to Chester Zoo, you're helping fund us that way. You're buying a membership, you're helping us support our mission uh, and then the same in terms of donations that could be individual donations legacy donation or corporate donation um, so yeah absolutely you know through reaching out through working with people perhaps then we can start to engage in a, in a much closer relationship uh, with, with other corporates which is really key that side i think one thing you also said brendan that resonated with me a little bit is when you talk about working more efficiently affecting the bottom line you know that's absolutely the case and when you start putting and uh, you know maybe we'll touch on certain things about procurement but when we we look at our procurement we, we then streamline that we know who we want to onboard and what credentials they have to have to work with us which then protects us from getting you know waste in waste out you know is it is a challenge for us so yeah i i think yeah definitely working together would be the way um but um yeah i'm, I'm with you on all that
0: so so one of the questions which came through is what is the biggest opportunities that building const- in building in building construction to reduce the use of plastics that's directed at you, Natasha. So we could probably lead that on and work our way through.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess well, again, I really see this transformation both in design and construction and building in terms of. Um, I think what the problem is that people have, and you know, not just uniquely to this industry, is that we always just go back to what the norm is. Um, you know, what we've always done, what's been proven, what um, you know, we know it's got a design life, we know that it will withstand resistance, so therefore we just go with that. And, and it's cheap and it's effective, and and you know there's usually huge pressure in terms of times, uh, time frame uh, programs. So that's what you know it goes to the default of what was norm. Um, also, because of building standards as well, um, you know that uh, does dictate what materials we use. But I, th- you know, there's definitely seeing more of an appetite in terms of cha- challenging the norm challenging those standards um, and testing different materials to see if they do withstand um, up to you know to the same lifetime expectancy as other materials. And so we're doing a lot of work with the Environment Agency at the moment and they're doing trials of you know different materials, different techniques of construction um, to really um, test the barriers um, and also to you know to determine if these things are feasible. But I think it's a, a combination of uh, clients need to, uh, you know, take on a little bit of a risk, um, be prepared to, you know, be innovative. And as part of that, that is that there is a little bit of a risk of trying new things um, and seeing what works. Um, but someone's got to do it, I guess, and someone's got to do it at a scale um, to, 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 um, you know, really challenge the norm in terms of what is appropriate and what can be used. And I also think, you know, particularly, you know, uh, local uh, cities or um, standards as well need to be more flexible in terms of of um, you know being able to put forward different materials or different approaches, which may not completely tick the box in terms of all the standards. What's been done so far, but but with without that, um, and if we have more flexibility in the structure of how we can design and develop buildings or, or infrastructure um, to be able to use different materials, then that will allow the innovation to flow. But I think um, yeah, the people's appetite for risk is um, has, has got to be key for that. But yeah. we're definitely seeing a real uh, shift towards the circular economy, um, and so then real that sort of real circular approach on buildings and infrastructure and design and use the use of materials. So that um, I, I, is a, a great shift in terms of uh, that people are really thinking of end of life and what these. Uh, what the materials and what can be buildings can be used at the end of the design life rather than just purely thinking, we're designing for this design life and then we move on. It's kind of what happens at the end. How can it be built for deconstruction? how can it be dissembled or how can it be reused? It's that whole whole yeah, of life and, design and again,
1: approach
0: yeah and and a whole life cost and a whole life value. Um, what what, what sometimes well historically would happen is that um, they they, they wanted to cost down, cost down, cost down cost down. And they'll use inferior products so you'll get yeah, you so know, over the lifetime of the of the building um, it will be a lot more expensive because the product fails so you're not getting the true value of, of anyway that's a whole different conversation and um, so i would imagine that comes yeah, on to. yeah uh,
2: i think uh, it's sort of carry on yeah oh sorry oh sorry i think, i was gonna say i think the other thing aspect of that we see particularly on um you know with uh, I guess and a good example would be on the sort of more drainage side and different things is that, you know, the standard uh, always dictates curb and gutter and that kind of real standard approach. But, you know, when we're trying to suggest alternatives like swales and more sort of natural and green uh, blue green infrastructure, um, then that kind of. you know, in terms of how um, cities or councils will um, maintain it, you know, it just is really challenging what is norm and, uh, you know, what's the asset, who's going to clean it, it just is so beyond what is the norm, and so I think, uh, you know, that kind of change has to happen at that institutional level to allow the innovation and um, uh, to happen at at design and construction level as well.
0: Sean, I I was going to ask you from a a policy and, and lobbying perspective. From, from what uh, Natasha is saying there, a lot of the challenges can be with the with the standards and with and with policy. So yeah, I, I yeah, mean, but
1: I, just haven't moved. You're absolutely right. They just haven't moved with the times. And you know, how many times do I have to hear? But oh, but plastic is the safest material that we can possibly use, and in health and safety, you know, it's the only one. You think how crazy is that? We're using this permanent toxic material that exists forever largely for temporary pur- purposes like packaging. And yet still uh, the, the governance that we have dictates that we continue to use it because other things are, are, are too nascent in the market. So yeah, it's absolutely right, we need you know, British standards, everything needs to, to really pick up the pace because we are now seeing a huge amount of new materials being brought onto the market that need to be accepted at scale and speed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Gareth, have you got any comments on that?
3: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, listen to what you're saying, I I kind of in my operation and and the role that I have here is I I kind of sit outside, I I see that more so if if that makes any sense. So we do have developments in the zoo, we're looking at the materials, the material costs going up, etc. And of course, as a charity. You know, it, 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 it's a hard decision, but you need to make the right decision. Um, I can make quick reference to a staff canteen. You know, the inside of that was fitted out using recycled um, wood. This uh, Exactly the same for uh, the Oakfield, big restaurant that we have on site. Uh, again, that was uh, recycled, reclaimed furniture inside. So there are ways to keep it down. But then there are also pressures and challenges because as a zoo, we have to think about uh, animal containment. I don't like the word containment, but we, we do have to look after them that way they've got amazing enclosures but we do have to look after them and you know that can involve steel that can involve different materials we have to think about aesthetics because we are visitor attractions things do have to look good they have to look realistic as well but then also we've got the other side as you touched on um, which was safety you know safety is there as well we've got visitor safety we've got staff safety which is really important and of course we're mindful on the horizon Uh, we we have to see what uh, comes out of the protect duty uh, and in terms of what we have to design and build buildings for to to build out terrorism, you know? So things we need to be mindful of. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of watching it all happen, but yeah, we, we could do with some change, yeah.
0: So w- when it comes to the waste, because you know we, we know um, that a lot of the product's not used, what strategies can companies do to actually minimize that waste? Uh, and I, I'm, I'm directing this at you, uh, Gareth, because you're probably in a unique position with, with your space um, within Chester Zoo, to, to to think about the the wider uh, alternatives
3: for reuse within a, within
0: your own ecosystem.
3: Absolutely, um, you know, cl- close the loop would be amazing to get to, but you need to start somewhere at the beginning. And I, and I think you can't manage what you don't know. And and that's really the piece I would start with and, and certainly talk about here is give my example of where we've been in the past nine years. So you need to understand what waste you're generating, um, because then that generates that baseline. And it's only from there you can help define really what's achievable and highlight any quick wins you can do there and then. You also need to really consider, you know, are we equipped? Are we resourced, experienced to take this on ourselves? Do we need a partner to support us into what would be a highly efficient waste management system in, in many aspects from that? So really understand what you have today, what you want to achieve, and where you get there. Um, so we've taken, you know, if, if you start at that base level, you know, we've undertaken audits of all our staff, welfare spaces, understand what facilities they are present because they are dotted around the zoo. We're a very large site, so looking at the, re- the recycling opportunities they have how we standardize that so our waste collections are aligned in terms of segregation and what we can actually recycle. Uh, The question itself um, also highlights key areas of focus for ourselves at the zoo. Uh, so by doing this, we were able to identify that some 95% of our general residual waste was procured through our own supply chain. So we had to start nailing that. You know, there's, there's work that was being done already in terms of single-use plastics, but really we need to focus on that. So we now review the wider supply chain, uh, finding the best possible outcomes for them with a the view of reducing, reusing, recycling all resources. Um, so, you know, uh, one of them being removal of the, the single-use plastics, the, the, the vast majority of them, and something even as small is recycling baler twine so the, the, the bit that holds all the hay together for our elephants that can be recycled so from the from the biggest things right down to the smallest things everyone can make a difference if you can identify it now it's not something that you can do in isolation you know you need to bring your teams on board and that's what we're going through that process at the minute you need to plan uh so we're, we're lucky as you say we have a big site uh we have an, an area that's being developed as what we call the resource recovery uh area um so That's going to be where all our waste will go to, um, to be recovered as best we can. Um, And we we will have staff there um, taking care of that for us on that side. But we do need to bring all our teams on board. Um, So that is education, team meetings, communication, uh, waste handbooks, obviously not paper, but electronic. um, So people can understand and feel part of that journey. If we talk back to what I originally spoke about, about um, uh, sustainable tourism, and members also have a key part to play when you come through the gates they they bring uh, they generate waste themselves in terms of picnics or food that we give them so it's really important to introduce them into that as well um so again we have to start with behaviour change. We have to find the right way for behaviour change, um, because yeah, at home we do recycle. We put everything into our recycling bins, but you tend to find when people come out that some will will forget that uh, completely. So we need to look at the right way for behaviour change, and we, our education team and the science team are looking at that as a bit of social science to find the right way to do that uh, and the right recycling opportunities on site. So what would make people do it in the right way at visitor attraction? Then we can push that out to others. That's going to be. Really really key to support them. But I think it's getting them to understand the part they play as well, uh, which is important. And um, again, the more efficiently we segregate. Um, yeah, you talk about the bottom line, but equally the carbon footprint uh, for waste goes down too. that's really key for us. And I, I think obviously, regardless of what you do, the one word of warning, I would say, is greenwashing. There are some really great sustainable examples out there. Um, absolutely. But think about where the where the destination the end destination of that product will be when it's used can it actually be recycled in its purpose it was designed for so it's it's really important that you go beyond that so yeah i think we're we're lucky we have the space to do it um and we're we're on that journey now Uh, once we get all the equipment in place it's about training our staff it's about segregating further and then putting it out to the waste streams but that's only step two I think step three for us to be honest Brendan we'd be very much looking at closing loops and um yeah working in a different way or you know preventing waste from leaving sites or so finding different ways perhaps to generate energy from what we have um so that's me that was one
0: of my next next questions about the different opportunities for for waste but we'll I'll, I'll come on to that after we've uh, heard from um Natasha and Sean so Natasha
2: Uh, yeah, no. Um, sorry, I've got track of what. It was such an interesting conversation. It, there's so many different aspects um, that we could cover. I guess um, the one thing I've been just reflecting on is, you know, we talk about waste as if it's a um, a bad thing which you know in some respects it is but i think we need to reframe the terminology in terms of that it's a resource um and it's you know it's a it's a valuable resource that can be reused or recycled or you know uh, or turned into different products and, and different processes and you know if you look at work that's being done at the moment with using black flies and, and different things that can really utilize waste and turn that into you know feedstock and they can turn it into you know compost and fertilization and, and into a valuable resource. So I think it is a bit of a mind shift in terms of that process. But I I would agree, you know, the first bit with with regards to waste or you know the end product is about reducing the import in the first place and avoiding waste, avoiding the use of products in the first place has to be completely key, the first stop. Um, recycling you know is is right down the end in terms of what we can do with uh, with the product but about avoiding that product in the first place and working with your supply chain to avoid you know those products being um being generated on site or being delivered as part of your whole supply chain um is is really the the fundamental question i guess at the the first instance
1: okay sean just add a couple of things to all those great points it's extraordinary to me how um we have normalized waste and it isn't normal. We are the only species on the planet that creates any waste. We live on a planet which is one huge recycling system. And yet somehow we've created materials that don't work with the recycling system of nature that in fact work against it in every single way that toxify nature, you know, infect nature rather than working with the natural recycling system. Just as, as Natasha and, and Gareth were referring to, you know, obviously using things that can then go back to the ground, toxin free in a very easy way that don't need a secondary process. That's the ideal, that we're taking a resource from the planet and giving it back. But right now we are pumping out as humans 5 billion tonnes of waste every single year. We're taking 1.7 planets worth of resources every year. So we are literally taking the resources from our children's future, using them today, calling them GDP, and then giving them back to the planet as waste. So much as I totally agree that we need to think of waste as a resource, it means that we have to fundamentally redesign products at the very beginning. You look at packaging, 40% of all plastic, which is one of the worst culprits for waste, because there is no global recycling system for plastic, unlike paper, card, glass, metal, inherent value systems for those. Plastic, there isn't. So we need to stop fooling ourselves that we think plastic is being recycled. In the UK, we recycle less than 10% of our plastic. We export 60% of it. In the US, it, go, it goes down to less than 5% of plastic in the US recycled there. So, and yet, you know, per capita, the US are number one producers per head of plastic waste and the Brits are number two. So they're not leagues that we should be proud to be, to be head of. So we need to redesign things. We need to go back to that very primary stage and rethink things So we know. Why is packaging temporary? Why do we not have an entire rethink? So just to, as Natasha was saying, recycle has to be the very, very last thing. And it, recycle is only things that are actually going to be recycled. One of the weasel words for me is that word recyclable. What does that even mean? Like, oh, I I exonerate myself of all responsibility because I made something that is hypothetically recyclable. I'm going to name one brand, Coca-Cola, the most polluting company on the planet. You add up two, three, and four pollutants and they do not reach the levels of Coca-Cola. 120 billion plastic bottles. They think it's okay because they've made it out of a recyclable material. So that word should be just banished. If there isn't an infrastructure for being able to recycle something, there's no value system for it. We have to redesign things. So our goal at a Plastic Planet is never to look at the waste. I don't even like talking about the waste. That's the problem end of it. I like looking at the other end, which is where are the solutions and how do we turn off the tap? So if businesses can simply address that and think instead, imagine if waste was, was banished. Imagine if waste was illegal. Imagine if plastic as a material was illegal because there is no infrastructure for taking it into a second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever, forever life, then we would redesign things. We'd think very differently and we'd we'd have a different level again of responsibility for us to step up to. So I see the moment that we have right now of this peak waste, peak acceleration to the climate crisis, the connection of all of these things. Uh, I see it actually as something with huge optimism, because this is a tap on the shoulder for humanity to say you've gone the wrong way. Waste isn't normal. There is a reason why the bin bag is black. We pop it outside our little bag of shame, hoping the recycling fairies will deal with it. I hate to burst your recycling bubble. There are no recycling fairies. It's just all going into something. Massive landfill, it's now going to incinerators. We're calling it this wonderful thing called waste to energy. Thinking that that's a good thing. No, we're just burning fossil fuels. We're burning food. We're burning stuff that should actually be going back into the ground. So we need to reframe all of these things and we need to be thinking a world without waste has to be the goal. So for that, we need to fundamentally redesign at the very beginning.
0: So that's quite a big. Um... Challenge, uh, Sean, to say the least. The lesson I've learned uh, on on my journey is that most people only really change when their customers demand the change. So how do we get how do we get the, the customers? And and they, when I say customers, they could be clients of Coca Cola, they could be clients who are procuring um, buildings, they could be clients who visit the zoo. How do we get them to change now? Gareth, you, you, you're doing amazing work with your outreach and the education piece, but and the, the challenge here, Sean, is and, and this goes back to policy, have we got the ability to change or is it, does it have to come down to legislation? And that's to you, Sean.
1: Brilliant, I wanted this one. <laughs> um, so Brendan, When I say voluntary doesn't work, plastic is a really great example of that. If you look at the systemic Pew Foundation report, which is really considered by the United Nations and and most people in in the environmental space, as the ground zero of a very good observation of where we are today and what we need to do. And the the sad truth is that if every voluntary commitment, if every government commitment globally were to be successful, we would see a 7% reduction by 2040, in what is forecast to be a trebling of plastic production and therefore plastic pollution, so voluntary and nobody is on track. No, everybody's got a pact, or a pledge, or a promise around the world of plastic. I don't know a single business that is on track to deliver by the date that they have set. So that tells us that voluntary doesn't work, and that is why we have to have new laws. And this whole thing of waiting for the rise of this mythical, ethical consumer, why is it their problem? Why is it their responsibility? You know, when when you look in the world of packaging, I didn't ask Coca-Cola to make it in plastic. I just, I wanna buy the Coca-Cola. Well, actually, I don't, but I want to buy the Coca-Cola. You know, I want to buy the product inside. I don't need the packaging that I am forced to take home. And then I've got the plastic guilt putting it into the mythical recycling bin. So it is not the consumer's problem. I see it very simply. It is industry's problem. People buy what they are sold. It is industry's job to sell them, to build them, something different, and it's government's job to mandate that they do that faster. And the only way that that will happen, and we see it time and time again, and I, you know, I'm I'm a businesswoman. I love the carrot versus the stick, but I know in this case it won't work because it's too hard for business to change. In the world of plastic, in the world of single use. These are the most subsidised materials on the planet, the cheapest materials on the planet, and that is because they come from the most subsidised industry on the planet. And it behoves industry, it behoves the fossil fuel industry, particularly keep focusing on the waste and say that we can just recycle it, we'll build this infrastructure so we can keep pumping it out at the primary end. None of these things are going to work if we we don't have new laws. So that's why we push for legislation, not because I believe in banning things or I believe in taxation. It's a blunt tool, but we haven't got time for us to wait for these little minute changes on the dial when the Titanic is going towards an iceberg right now. We need something more dramatic.
0: Natasha, follow that one.
2: Oh, that's a tough one. Default. That's awesome. It's very inspirational, Sharon. Um, and, and and a good example of 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 that, I think, is often that businesses are often dictating what the consumer expectations are. So, a good example of that was in Australia. We had um, the this the supermarket set standards in terms of the size and length of bananas, and they said this is what the consumer wants. They want the perfect size banana. So, if this banana is bigger than this length then we're not taking it and then or if it's smaller then, and, and so there was huge amounts of waste in terms of uh, produce and vegetate, you know, because they weren't this perfect sized banana that the supermarkets had de- determined was what a consumer would buy. And so that's the kind of um, change that has to happen because, you know, th- it meant that as a consumer, it doesn't matter, you know, we had no control over that process. And we, there's huge amounts of, you know, generative waste because of what a supermarket is dictating what a consumer is expecting and, and wants in terms of those perfect fruit and vegetables. So I think um, you know Shan's completely right. There is a certain amount that a consumer can do, um, but it's it, it is really difficult as a consumer base, you know, to um, to get what you need and get what you want, uh, you know. And um, but when so much of that is being dictated by big 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 business in the first place, so it really has to yeah we have to break down those barriers and and have that complete um, transformational shift.
0: Gareth,
3: any comments on it? Right. Um, yeah, that's that's a a good one to follow in in many ways. Um, I, I think if if you look at us, so it goes back to initial conversations where. You know we've developed a conservation master plan uh in, in order to take action um you know we're, we're here to prevent extinction that's our mission and you know our, our focus was de- definitely on the biodiversity of the planet um but then you know there was a crisis looming so we need we need that action so for us develop that plan and get moving but when i think about you know the the, the voices that are driving us you know as a business we're doing the right thing it, it needs to be done but equally we need to be mindful about who our customers will be you know who our customers are today mightily important but who they're going to be in the future as well so all these young voices um who who want change who want a planet so that they can exist in um you know we we have to do the thing for that as you know for them as well which is important so yeah, we, we look at sustainable alternatives. And I, I know that's a word that uh, can be bounded around, but you know, right, we think about our toys for the shop and that's just one example, um, the plush toys. When you're looking at your supply chain and what they can deliver, well, we, we've we've worked endlessly with them. So we now have a 100% RPET plastic filled plush toy. Now RPET is, uh, for, for those who don't know, it's plastic collected within 50 kilometers uh, from an ocean coastline or waterway that's been left. It's sort of transformed into that high quality and what can be food and uh, food safe recycled plastic but that's in the toys you even go down to the plastic tigers on them they've been removed they're cotton instead and the um, hang tags are now made from recycled card with printed soy ink so you need to go down to that level you need to look at everything so yeah it is a call to action um, that, that's just a part of what, what we do here but yeah it's very much we need to do what we know is right but we also have to listen to the generation that's coming up behind us and make sure we, we've got something for them interesting
0: okay now then um th- we've got 10 minutes left so i'd like you to each of you think about the future and where where do you see us in say five ten years time and um, and where do we need to be and how big is the gap and we'll start in construction first so i'm, I'm, I'm giving guys time to think there Starting construction first with natasha Uh, because I think you probably will have done some work on this. So over to you.
2: That's a really good question. Um, I guess there's so many different aspects, depending for uh, talking about, you know, from a sustainability perspective, I know uh, we need to you know, with that broad spectrum, we want to look at across the environment and social and economic. So that it encompasses all aspects of, you know, sustainability. So including waste, including materials. And so I think that there's that recognition that we need to shift um, beyond thinking uh, of the immediate needs and thinking beyond in terms of future needs, both in terms of resilience, but, but also about flexibility and uh, adaptability within the built form. So making sure that we're not just building for you know our needs right at the moment but uh, uh, you know recognizing these buildings are going to be around for you know hundreds and hundreds of years and therefore we need to be able to design for them to be flexible and adaptable and reuse so we've really got to shift away from that you know oh it's cheaper to just demolish uh, a building and rebuild something new because it's easier and it's quicker and it's cheaper um, but really looking at those buildings as assets um, that are there for the future life and and how they can adapt to how we're living um, as well as how they're going to be used in the future. Um, I think also, you know, having that, yeah, that flexibility and adaptability is is absolutely key. Um, But particularly as, you know, energy energy processes are changing and, you know, we're really moving towards that net zero economy, then we need to be flexible in terms of how technologies change as well and how those buildings can adapt that change. yeah, that would be sort of the key, is it? I mean, there's, a, I think, also from a broader sustainability perspective, the built environment is also really recognising the health and wellbeing aspect of of built the built form as well. So it's, you know, we're not just looking at a building in isolation, looking at how a building is part of a city and how that building um, participates in city life and facilitates, you know, the broader aspects of of, of you know work and health and well being and living rather than just you know an isolated building in, in in the built form so it's thinking of it how it operates in a city and, and country level as well and how it, it really interacts with those processes we'll go gareth
3: next yeah i think uh, just touching on uh, what you said there natasha is it, it, quite interesting about buildings facilitating um well being I, I think if i think of um zoo buildings brendan it, it's very much they, they need to facilitate the zoo visit in many ways you know they need to be here a long time and you know we've got some buildings that are still here i'm sitting about 40 feet from the aquarium and that was built by the motorshead family who originally started chester zoo so things are here to stay you're 100 correct on that but can you know can they be adaptable that 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 is important there are buildings that can't be adaptable but we also then need to be mindful so when I when I go back to referring about buildings facilitating the zoo visit they also need to facilitate uh, the collection within it and sometimes what can be a harsh environment um, for a building you know in terms of humidity etc especially here in the UK so I think for, for us it's really important when you're looking at that built environment yeah the building's one thing but you know looking at heating systems cooling systems whatever we need be it water-filled recycling, how we maximize um, their use without having an impact on the environment in the best way. And we touched on a little bit, I know we haven't spoke about it, but just to hint on it in in terms of reusing our waste, completely get what you say, Sean. but there is elements of waste that can be used as a resource for us that we can maybe put into heating, cooling, uh, and then fertilizer afterwards. So, you know, 100% of what goes into a particular um, item would come out hundred percent usable. You know, not nothing is wasted that way. So that's kind of where I, where I would see it now. We we need to be going down those lines.
0: Sean.
1: So uh, I had this fortunate position uh, doing what I do right now. I can often be the protagonist, the slightly unreasonable person in the room de- demanding more change. Um, and so uh, I like, I, I have this really annoying thing for the whole of this year, two months. Uh, I've been saying to everybody, imagine if you rebuilt your business today. So let's take Coca Cola. Imagine if you created a, a fizzy drinks business today. What would it look like? For sure, it would not be a high fructose syrup drink that ships water around the planet that gives people diabetes that's packaged in plastic. You wouldn't do that today. So how extraordinary, I think, as CEO of a business to make sure that you carve out enough time and you build that kind of innovation and incredibly broad thinking team to step aside, look at a white piece of paper and say, if you built our business today, then what would it look like? Because then you've got that North Star. And I see the businesses today because change is so difficult. Everything is about, this is where we are. This is why we can't change. I don't want to know why why you can't change. That's not my job to know why you can't change. Knowing why not is a massive um, hurdle to get over for people. So sometimes you have to approach things with radical naivety and just think, forget the baggage behind. Don't drag it and climb over it every single day. Let's just imagine we're building a brand new business today in the world of personal care, in architecture, in whatever it may be you know, an incredible zoo like Chester Zoo, what would it look like? And then you've got that North Star and you can plan a roadmap to get there because we, we, we're we moving too slow. And that for me is is the biggest accelerant is if you've got a vision, because that's how humans work. We don't work with pieces of paper and packs and pledges and promises. There's nothing emotional about that. We work with people You create visions, which is why personally I think the world of architecture is incredible because you create environments people live in that that change how they feel. Right now, we have, well, we just come through a pandemic where we had an opportunity, where we could rethink everything, where we could come back to business in a brand new way. It saddens me that I think all we're trying to do is just scrabble back as fast as we can to the old status quo, getting back to, you know, the old normal. For that to be our new normal. When we had a moment, because we know that when there is a time of extreme crisis or stress, that's the time that you enact extreme change. And that change can be for the better. And I feel we've lost that moment now. So that moment of extreme stress is gonna be the climate crisis. And right now we are all just treading water, hoping that we can squeeze every last ounce of profit out of the status quo and waiting for some mythical thing to happen. The change is gonna come from us. So my call to action for anybody who's listening is your business is the tool of change. Yes, of course, we have a personal level of responsibility. You vote with your wallet every single day, but business is where you have your power. So how can you use that power within your business to, to accelerate everything going forward? It is absolutely no coincidence to me that the crisis in mental health is happening at the same time as the climate crisis. We have completely disconnected ourselves from nature in a very unhealthy way for us. What, What was the one thing that we all just yearned for when we were in lockdown, when you're only allowed to go out and be in nature for half an hour a day? You know, that was the thing that we appreciated more than anything else, I believe. And we're swinging too quickly back to the old normal. Let's not forget where we were and what we're capable of. We can do extraordinary things when, when, you know, when it hits the fan. We've just proven that. So I feel now is the moment for business to use the people and the energy within their, all their different departments, find out who are the innovators, the pioneers, and give them that brief. If you created our business today on a white sheet of paper, what would it look like? And then set a roadmap to get there.
0: I, t- I totally agree um, on, on the fact that we, we, we're missing the opportunity of, of, of the pandemic for, for greater change. And you can see it with people being um, you know, en- encouraged back into the office. Um, you know, and I I've personally have found that the amount of time I've saved uh, by not going here, there, and everywhere is, is, is phenomenal. You know, it's, it's, and I think that uh, we can be a lot more productive and we can move a lot faster. If we if we embrace what we've learned over the last couple of years, um, but again, I totally agree. You know, the the looming climate crisis is, is going to make the pandemic look like you know a, a walk in the park for where we're going. Now, what we got? We got yeah. two minutes, so one final word, thirty seconds each, and we'll start with uh, Sean. Thirty final seconds. Positivity.
1: Positivity, yeah. Um, I am a huge optimist and and I I am determined to be part of the generation that made this mess, but also started on the road to fixing it. Uh, We need to get back to a completely different model where hyper consumption is not the goal and trying to persuade us to buy more and more and more stuff to fill the hole inside us. We will never have enough of things that we don't actually need. So we need to buy less by better, business will not fail because of this. We need to repair more, we need to share more. And I think we will be happier because of it.
3: Gareth right yeah you say share, uh sean that that's really uh, important to me and i think i've said it a few times ab- about we we in our journey uh, we've got our four sustainability goals that we're heading toward we have a conservation master plan that overarches everything but i'd like to think we're doing you know we started some good work in terms of uh, being a sustainable you know in, in terms of sustainability and um, our waste Uh, looking that way I think by sharing our knowledge by working together um, not just to find the best way to support other smaller organizations who may need some help but also to try and drive that change at higher levels and be that in Westminster or be that in in, in local authority to to try and make sure we have the best availability resources that we can do what we can to protect the environment when it comes to recycling Um, so yeah working together sharing that that's where I'm at (laughs) and Natasha the final words
2: my final words: I think we'd just be to encourage everyone to act. Um, don't be um, frozen by the fear of um, imperfection. I think some, you know, we're very. Um, in you know industry people I think well if I'm not going to do it perfectly I won't do it but any small action um, is is a positive action and you know and if everybody's doing things as well as they could do that collective action is where we're going to get change and and we're going to have those benefits so you know if you can't be 100% plastic free if you can be 50% plastic free or 70% plastic free that is so much better than where we're at at the moment so don't yeah as I said don't be frozen by um you know that fear of imperfection but really act and um and do what you can at, at this point because yes as Sean has said there it's no time for sitting on our morals we, we've got to act now so yeah I'd encourage you all to uh, do what you can.
0: Natasha, Gareth and Sean, I'd like to thank you very much on behalf of Changing Streams and I look forward to seeing you again thank you very much.
3: Thank you. Okay. Thank you all.